take our, for our Bible study this morning, let's take our Bibles and head over to the book of Colossians. The book of Colossians chapter 3. Thank you so much for that special selection. Colossians chapter 3. There's a story that comes out of history about 1836 that what happened was right at the break of the Texas Revolution. Remember, Texas at the time was under Mexican control. That in that region, a number of Texans decided that they would revolt against and try to have independence and found a new country of Texas. And what happened at that time was there was a tribe of Indians that lived along the coast right at the Texas-Mexico border as we know it today, the Karankawas that lived there, and they had developed a friendship with some of the ranchers. One of the ranchers was a gentleman by the name of Philip Dimmitt. And Dimmitt, what he would do with these Indians who would come across his area, he would allow them to take a cattle or two every so often to help provide food for them. Well, at the outbreak of the revolution, Dimmitt joined in with the Texans in revolt against the Mexicans. And he became a captain in those, in those armies that were fighting for their freedom. And after he had left, the Karankawa tribe, one of the tribes, came by and they wanted to get some food. He was gone already, so what they opted to do is they thought it would be no problem. They've done it for a long time. They took one of the cattle and they were slaughtering it. About the time that they were slaughtering it, all of a sudden some Mexican soldiers who were trying to catch up with the revolutionaries came across these Indians on Dimmitt's ranch. They asked them what they were doing. And they said, There's, the Indians responded, no problem, we are friends of Dimmitt. Well, Dimmitt was an enemy now of the Mexicans. The Mexicans assumed that the Indians are a friend of Dimmitt's, they're enemies. So they opened fire upon them. They killed a large number of the tribe. The rest scattered up into the hills and the wooded area and got back together after a few days. And they were trying to keep themselves safe. And they were trying to get through not knowing what was all happening in the political stage between all these white men. And all of a sudden, there they were as a group that, that were licking their wounds from being almost slaughtered. And up comes some Texas revolutionaries approaching them. Well, the Indians, thinking, oh no, we're going to get shot again, they started calling out, Viva Mexico! Viva Mexico! The Texas revolutionaries opened fire, and most of that entire tribe were killed. We can get into a lot of trouble by the words we say at the wrong moment, at the right, and, you know, to the wrong people. And we know that that often happens. So let's ask this question. Who gets into more trouble? Men or ladies, by the words that they say, by the number of words they say. Who do you think talks more, men or ladies? <laughs> you don't want to get in trouble, so you're not going to answer. Okay. There are a lot of self-help books. There's comments that came out of the 90s, and I've even used this at times in some of our homes, messages about the home that said men speak about 7,000 words a day. How many do you think they say for ladies? So they say for ladies they talk more. Okay. Now what happened is some researchers decided let's find out where this number came from, and they cannot find a source that does gives these figures. Instead, what they did out of the University of Pennsylvania, what they did is they study twice now in the last few years where they microphone people and then they, a large group of people and they try to figure out who says more, who talks more during the day, men or ladies. Guess what they found? Men say about 15,669 words a day. How many do you think ladies say? More or less? Mm, still don't want to get in trouble, huh? <laughs> they say more by a whole lot. 
right? <laughs> not by much. Not by much. The average person says about these amounts of words, and it doesn't make any difference gender-wise, basically, as far as the amount of words. But we do know that if you say the words that you do, if they were recorded in books, the average size of a book is about yay big and about 200 pages. If your words were recorded for a year, on average, you could fill over 100 books with what you say. Well, that'd be a lot of stuff that you have in print that tells you that you say an awful lot. Then it doesn't surprise me that the words we can conclude are very important, and that is because they reveal you. Your words tell what's on the inside. In fact, the Word of God says this as Jesus spoke further. He says, it tells what you are spiritually, if you're born again or not born again, if you're condemned or not going to be condemned. The Word of God tells us that not only words reveal you, tell your spiritual state, but they're very powerful. The words you say, as, as the passage says from Proverbs, they have power of life and death, and we know that's true. We know that even the words from a judge, for instance, literally does have power of life and death. A judge can make a difference by what they say as far as the fine. How many years somebody may be in jail or whether they go to jail. We know words make a tremendous impact that come from doctors. If you've ever been in that spot where all of a sudden you're meeting with the doctor to hear the result of some type of clinical test, the words that they may say may have profound impact on your life if they say you've got cancer. Or if they say you don't have cancer. What an impact. We know that historically, when Hitler wrote his book, Mein Kampf, for every, one, for every word that was written in that book, 125 people were killed. They died. Words are potent. They're powerful. They make a tremendous impact. They not only tell us about you, but your words affect other people. Proverbs gives the advice that you can even stop a quarrel, turn away wrath, by using some calm, cool, collected words. We know that the Bible gives the indication that the tongue is like the sword that can do so much damage, or it can bring healing. We know that it can cause great damage from the book of James. He says that our tongue is like a wildfire set on course destroying nature. Those peoples who are going through that on the West Coast, they understand a little bit of how those wildfires are so dangerous, and that can happen with our speech. When we talk, we can benefit other people. We can encourage them. We can comfort them by sharing truths and, and promises from the Word of God. Or what we can do is share the Word of God. And then they that gladly receive the Word may have the hope that they are one day going to be in heaven. Our words are tremendously impacting. Our words can make a difference in your own life. The Bible tells you that if you want to get to heaven, you have to believe in your, you have to uh, confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is the one who's re died, buried, resurrected, so you can be in heaven. It's not you, it's not me, it's what you do with Jesus Christ that gets you to heaven. We don't get ourselves into heaven, and our words of whether we call upon the Lord for forgiveness, for salvation, makes all the difference in your eternity. Your words can make a difference in guarding you and your life from troubles, the, pro the, the Proverbs talks about. So we know they're powerful. And it brings us to that idea that 
it's no wonder, no, no question why God gives so many comments and so many tidbits of advice about the words you speak. He tells you to be careful, to be quieter. He tells you to be controlled. He tells you to speak encouraging words. He talks about not being critical. He talks about staying away from the brawlers. And so the Word of God is filled with that advice. One of the passages that talks about the words and how you use your words is Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. In this book, if you haven't been studying with us week by week, we've been talking, uh, going through it verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph, we've been talking about the theme of this book. It basically, if we were to back up and explain it before we jump into chapter 4, he has talked about Jesus Christ. And talked about how great he is. That Jesus Christ is creator. We didn't evolve. There isn't such an idea that we came from amoeba. But rather Jesus Christ created the creation. He created man and woman. He gave the ability to propagate. He created the world with age. And with maturity. So that for some it may appear older than than it is. And so the word of God talks about him being our creator. Since he's our creator we're accountable to him. And then the passage went on after in chapter 2 talking about he's our completer. That salvation is found in Christ alone. That he is the one that takes away the handwriting or the legal documents that record our sins. That he's put them to the cross, blotting them out with his own blood. That Jesus is the one that reconciles us who are sinners with the Father. It's not a church. It's not baptism. It's not our nationality. It's not our family. It's Jesus Christ. And so he's talked all about the work of Christ, creation, completing our salvation. And that brought the writer to the conclusion that says, therefore, Christ should be exalted. He should be preeminent in our church, in our homes, in our lives, in our marriages, in the way we raise our kids. And then what he does in this section, he follows it up and says, and in our speech. And so we pick up in chapter 4 and just jump right into the text flowing as it flows in verse 2. Continue in prayer and watch in the same with thanksgiving. With all praying also for us that God would open unto us a door of utterance to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am also in bonds. That I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom towards them that are without, redeeming the time. Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer every man. Now, I've mentioned already that the Word of God gives a lot of practical advice about the words we say, how we conduct ourselves. But in this verse, he's only going to deal with two aspects of our speech. He's going to talk about how we can use our ability to speak in two ways, two major ways that we ought not to neglect. Number one is this. Use your speech to pray to God. Use your ability to speak to pray to God. Well, that's in those first couple of verses where he says, continue in prayer. Very clearly, he is telling us that the highest activity we can do, the best activity we can do with our speech is to talk to our Creator. To come to him with with needs. To be able to come to him with praise and with adoration. To come to him to ask for his forgiveness. And as we look at that word, that command, let me make it clear. The continue is the imperative. That's the command. That's the singular command in this one verse. You continue in prayer. Which gives us this idea. That tells us that when we look at it in, in closely, we are, God does, assume that we are already praying. 
If he says, continue doing something, keep on doing it, he's assuming that you're regularly praying. Is his assumption right? He commands us to keep on doing what we've been doing. So this week, continue in prayer. No matter what's happening, continue in prayer. He's, He's giving us the idea never to stop. Just keep on doing what you've been doing. Don't stop, even if things don't go quite the way you think they should. Even if things aren't changing the way you think they should change. Make prayer a part of your life the way you do brushing your teeth. The way you do changing your clothes. The way you do feeding your body. Feed your spirit and your soul by praying to God on a regular basis, on a daily basis. That it's becoming just a natural part of you. Some of you, you are, you are so inclined that, that you do certain things. You get in the car, and the way you start the car, and then you turn on the radio or the music, it's just a part of you. Well, make prayer that much a part of you, that it's just habitual, that you are thinking, talking, explaining, sharing, praising God throughout the day. But there's something else that we need to keep in mind. This is so much what Christ promoted. That idea where he says in a couple different parables in Luke, where he talks about how that man came, we had company and said, hey, neighbor, I, I don't have enough food to feed my company. And the man said, it's late, go to bed. I don't want to get up and give you anything. But he was persistent and persistent. Jesus said, keep on praying in the same way. In fact, in that same book, he says about a widow who needed some judgment made. She didn't have money to bribe the judge, but she kept on after him, kept on after him. And finally, finally the judge responds and here's her case. Jesus gave those parables for this idea that men ought always to pray and not to faint. Which brings me to an important question. Why do we do that? Why should we pray over and over? Is it because God is hard of hearing? His hearing aid battery is bad this week? Or is it that God is so preoccupied with other people that he didn't hear you? Is it because that you are just small compared to the large numbers that you've got to keep on banging at his door so as to get his attention? And and then we add to it this thought that not only does it say pray over and over, but he says, I even know what you need before you even ask. Well, then why do I have to pray? Do I have to convince him to, to listen to me, to meet my needs? We know that's not true. We know that God is not reluctant to answer our prayers. We know that God said way back in the book of Jeremiah, Call unto me and I will answer thee and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. We know that our God wants to answer prayer. He delights in answering prayer. He is, he is thrilled when you take the time to come and talk to him about your needs and your desires. So why? So why does he say, keep on, keep on, keep on? Why does he say, be persistent? Why should you pray over and over and over again for something? Can I give you a couple possibilities that make sense? One is because of this. One is because as you and I keep on praying, we are definitely displaying faith. We are definitely saying, God, I really need you. God, I'm not, I'm not just coming in and saying, I want this, and then I'm going to run and take care of it myself. God, I need you. I I really desperately want your help. I desperately depend and rely upon you. That I keep on coming back to you because I know that it's from you that these blessings flow. It is you that gives me strength. There's another reason why we do it. We need to get in tune with the Lord. There are times when we pray and we may pray for something that we desire, but is it what God desires? Is it within the will of God, in the plan of God? Jesus 
when he is praying, not my will but thine be done. In the Lord's Prayer, he's, we're supposed to pray, we want your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so we come before the Lord and we pray and we share our burdens, we share our desires. We, we, have, uh, we have what we think may work out best, but at times God says, I have a different plan. I have a different way of working. Sometimes we're like the little kid who wrote a letter to God. The guy was working in the post office, and as he was working, he was going through the mail, and he saw a letter that had a little kid scribbling on it, had a return address, but it was addressed, God in heaven, and that's all it said. So the postman opened it up because it was going to go in the dead and gone file, but he opened up and he read this little note that was from this kid. Hi, God. This is Jimmy. I'm six, and I live at... Can you please help us out? I don't know who else to turn to. My daddy died not too long ago, and my mommy is really having a tough time taking care of me and my two younger brothers. Could you please send us $500? It would mean a lot to my mom and us. Thank you. Well, that post worker, he was so moved by it, he shared it with other postal workers, and together they came up with $300. They put the $300 into an envelope. They had the address, so they finished out the address, had one of their fellow carriers take it to the house and deliver it, and they thought, we've done a good deed, that's great, they should be happy. A couple weeks later, another letter comes by. It's got Jimmy's return address. To God in heaven above. So the guy opened it up. Hi, God, this is Jimmy again. Remember me? Thank you for the money. It was a big help. But the next time you send us money, would you please deliver it yourself? The post office isn't real good at doing that. They charge an awful lot, and they took $200 out of the last amount that you sent us. <laughs> Sometimes we think this way, that God, you didn't do it the best way possible. Some of you are thinking about that with the elections. That something, God, God's plan has gone awry. That's not true. God is still on the throne, folk. Do you remember the phrase, in God we trust? It's in God. It is not in the Republicans we trust. It is not in Trump we trust. It's in God we trust. And so we turn to the Lord and we say, hey, sometimes it's good for us to just spend time in prayer to get in tune with Him. Sometimes it's good for us just to learn patience. Have you ever had this happen? That you go to the Lord and you're praying about something and as you pray about it, you realize after a while, this isn't what's best. Or things are changing. And in his timing, what you would have asked for wouldn't be the best thing to have happened. So spending time in prayer is critical. And God tells us, hey, make sure you do this. Make sure you do it. Now, something else about prayer that stands out in those first couple of verses continue in prayer. And then he goes on, he makes the comment right after that, and watch in the same with thanksgiving. That brings us to this thought, that when we pray, we should be engaged, not mechanical. We should be engaged, not mechanical. Me, when I grew up. I grew up in a church setting that taught us canned prayers. Prayers that we would come and we would say in rote memory, but our brain could be elsewhere. And we could just go through those, those whatever, the beads or whatever, and we could just say the prayers mechanically. How would you like that? If all of a sudden somebody came up to you, let's say we have conversation afterwards, and I have my canned phrase, that I walk up and I say, hi, Jim. And you say, hey, how you been? I've been fine. How are you? I hope you have a great week. Hi, Chuck. How are you? I am fine. I hope you have a great week. Hey, Josh. How are you? I am fine. Have a great week. After a bit, you'd smack me. 
okay? Or worse yet, what if I come up to you and we're having conversation? And while we're having conversation, all of a sudden I start saying, oh yeah, I got to remember to do this. Oh yeah, I got to make sure I send a note to so-and-so. And while you're talking to me, I'm thinking about other things. I wonder how God feels sometimes when we pray. When we come with canned prayers or when we come, our minds disengage and we think about all other kinds of things, but we're not thinking about we're talking to him. And we say it's rude when we do it to one another. How rude can it be before our creator? That's why he says when you continue in prayer, the idea is be serious about, courageously, be devoted to it. That idea, while watching, it's a participle here, that as you continue in prayer, make sure you're doing it with alert mind, not sleeping, not drifting, but you're really focused And so he encourages this, that when we pray, be engaged when you pray, not mechanical. Something else that stands out. He wants us to give praise, not just over and over giving petitions. How do I know that? Look at the verse. Look where he says, be watchful with thanksgiving. And this time of the year, of all times of the year, sure, we should be thinking about this. That when we come before the Lord, that we're not just saying, give me more, give me more, give me more. But pausing and giving praise. Kind of doing what Daniel did, we did a Bible study on Wednesdays. We've been doing, we're doing them every other week. And we did that on a Wednesday morning a couple weeks ago where Daniel is all of a sudden trapped because his co-workers get a law passed by the king so that the king says nobody can pray to anybody else but me. And if you do, you're going to be cast into a lion's den. Soon as the law is signed, do you remember what Daniel does? It says he goes to his apartment, he opens the windows, and he kneels down and he prays and gives thanks as he did aforetime, as he did in his practice. How do you give thanks when your life is being threatened? Mature people can. Mature godly people find that there's ways to give praise and they don't just take things for granted. They don't take God for granted. They are humbled by God would give us far more than what we deserve. And so you, as you grow in your faith, as you're trying to exalt Christ more and more and make him preeminent, well then make him preeminent with praise, with thanksgiving. By the way, all the verbs here, all the pronouns are all in a plural, which means these commands continuing in prayer, these commands be engaged in prayer, they are for every single one of you who calls Christ your Savior. They are for all of you. Not just for the ladies, not just for the adults, not just for the seniors. It is for every one of us in this room who are listening at home that we be engaged in this type of praying. This is, this is how we're to use our speech. The loftiest, the greatest thing we can do, the first thing he tells us to do is make sure you're praying. Make sure you're praying. Now there's something else that's important here. In that first couple verses, it's very clear we're praying about our own items. We're giving thanks for our own items. We're being constant for our needs. But then what he says, and by application and illustration, he says, and in verse 3, while you're doing that, while you are praying and giving praise and thanksgiving, praying also for us. In other words, we're to pray for other people. In this passage, Paul says, pray for me. Pray for me. And it is amazing. It is amazing what, he, what can be fleshed out here. Now, for you and me, this is an important truth. It, it, an important idea. Sometimes we hear of people in needs. And when we hear in needs, we say, is there something I can do? Pray for me. Well, is there something that I could really do? Do you realize prayer is not the least you can do? Prayer is the most you can do for somebody. 
praying for them. Don't underestimate your accomplishments by praying for other people. Don't underestimate how impacting that can be by you praying for one another. And so he says, let's do this, let's pray, especially in this passage for those in the leadership position. Paul says, pray for me. Pray for me. Pray so that here, you know, uh, I can do something. Now, what he does is it's qualified. You're going to find out, that if you even look at the English, that is going to show up twice. It's giving us, in the original language, the purpose, the reason, the, the subject matter of the prayer. Pray for us that. The first that is this, that God would open unto us door of utterance to speak the mystery of Christ. The reason he says mystery of Christ is he's talking about that idea that we need to share Christ where he has yet to be heard. We need to tell the truths that some people have yet to uncover about Christ. He's not saying that Christ and and that whole message of Jesus is so hard to understand. No, it is yet to be told to some people. And some people have never heard the fullness of the gospel. So help me, he says, to have opportunity to speak this news to people who have yet to hear this news. And so he's praying that he would open a door. We all know what that means. What Paul is praying for, he says, pray for opportunities. Pray that I would have opportunities to share the gospel. That I would have occasion to share the gospel. Now at the moment that Paul is writing, he's in a prison. He's confined. He doesn't have as great of opportunities as you would have as a free person. But he says, pray that even in this prison, I have an opportunity to share the gospel. But then what happens, well, let me back up. Let me give you a story about an opportunity to share the gospel that we would probably overlook. There's an evangelist whose son, now as an adult, tells the story about what happened when he was growing up in the evangelist's home. That one time when they were at home and dad was home from, from holding meetings, that all of a sudden there was at night this loud pounding at the door. Somebody on the outside and they started yelling and screaming. They, they were yelling and screaming. They were drunk. They found out afterwards as this was going on. And the person was saying, I'm Jesus Christ. I want, and he'd call out the evangelist by name, I want him to come out here. I want to talk to him. And it kept on, kept on. And the guy was getting louder. And he was pounding. The kids got terrified. The wife got terrified. The kids, as, they, as now the boy shares as an adult man, we, he says, we hid behind the sofa. We were so scared where our dad got so mad. He was so upset that somebody would come to his house and create such a situation. And he says, our dad walked up to the door, opened the door, and punched the guy out. He says, the guy went down. He was flattened on the sidewalk. And the guy was stunned. The guy shook his head. And the evangelist saying, you get out of here. Don't you ever come to my house again. I'm going to call the police if you don't get out of here. The man on the ground started crying. My friends put me up to this. I didn't mean any harm. Please forgive me. The evangelist, being creative, took the opportunity, sat on the stoop, put his arm around the man, shared the gospel. The guy prayed to get saved right there. Okay, that's taking your opportunities. Now, I'm not suggesting punch people out, and when they come to, you preach to them. Okay, but take the opportunities that sometimes we look and say, oh, I don't have an opportunity, but God has given us it, even in rare situations. And so Paul says, I pray not only for an opportunity, but then he gives a second that. I pray that, he says, I may make manifest as I ought to speak. 
So Paul says in this text, he says, I know I'm supposed to speak. God has commanded me to speak, but sometimes it's hard for me to speak up. Can you relate to that? Do you know that you're supposed to share the gospel? Right? This is the moment you're supposed to go, yes. Thank you. Okay. Do you, do you know that God wants you to tell about his salvation to all men? Again, this is your moment to say yes. That's true. Do you ever find it hard? Intimidating. Thank you. Okay. It's, it's hard. It's intimidating at times. We need to pray for boldness, just like they did in the book of Acts. God give us boldness, they say in Acts 4. And so Paul says, I know I'm supposed to do it, but I struggle sometimes. God, please, you people, pray for me to be bold. Pray for me to be bold. There's a story that's true out of history that comes about Charles Haddon Spurgeon, great preacher in England, a huge church years ago where they shared the gospel. Thousands of people got saved, missionaries sent around the world. Well, some folk as delegation went from America over there. They wanted to observe his ministry and see if they could learn anything. And so before a Sunday morning service was starting, he was was giving them a tour, answering their questions, and they said, but why is your ministry so impacting? Why is it so so uh, profitable in the sense of reaching people with the gospel of Christ? And he says, well, let me show you the furnace room. And he took them in the basement, and they're wondering, what does a furnace room have to do with... And he opened the door, and inside, there wasn't machinery and fire going, there was people kneeling. Dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of people kneeling. And Spurgeon said, every Sunday morning, literally hundreds are praying for me as I preach. They are praying for the power of God upon my lips, upon this ministry, that God would be honored. What an impact. I, I was listening to a sermon this week by a fellow believer who, was sharing, who preaches the gospel out west. And he's talking, he said, he got the strangest Christmas gift from his church. This is a few years ago. Some of the people in the church gave him a Christmas gift, and it was a card. And in this card, it had a list of 1 through 52 and names beside it. And he said, uh, okay, thank you. He wasn't sure what the list was, what this was all about. And they said, well, here's what we've done. We have gotten people to sign up that every week of this year, these people will spend 15 minutes a day praying for you. That's their gift to you. That preacher's response, he said, I couldn't have gotten a better gift from the church body to know that people were praying for me every day. And so Paul says, pray for me. Pray for me that I would have boldness. What does this tell you about Paul? That he says to the church, pray for me that I would have boldness. Doesn't it say to you that Paul's greatest concern had to be getting out the gospel? Doesn't it say to you that while he's in prison, he doesn't say, pray that I get out of prison. We would. That's what we would say. We'd say, oh, make sure that I get comfortable and convenient. Doesn't this tell you that Paul is thinking the most important thing in my life is making sure I share the gospel? Doesn't this tell you that Paul was more concerned about living up to his obligations his call than his own convenience. Uh, it shares with me, tells me this, that Paul's attitude was fantastic. That here is a man who's in confinement. He can't go around. His job for the last de few decades has been traveling all over, sharing and ministering. And now he's stuck in one spot. Some of you are in confinement too, aren't you? 
Some of you are confined right now by an illness. You're confined by finances. You can't, things aren't the way you thought they were. You're confined. Some of you feel like you're trapped in a relationship. It could be your marriage. You feel like this is, this is something so difficult and it's like being in a, in a situation that is terrible and, and Paul's attitude is amazing. In his confinement, he is saying, I am not quitting. The reason I'm in jail is because I was a Christian servant. I'm not quitting as a Christian servant. I'm not giving up just because I'm in jail. I'm not going to get bitter at God. I'm not going to get mad at God. I'm still going to serve God even though things aren't going the way I thought they should go. Have you been thinking that through the last few days as you watch the national news? That God is still God and no matter what, we're to serve. We're supposed to have this attitude. Go through the epistle. Several times Paul is saying, I give thanks, I give thanks. How do you give thanks when you're sitting in prison? Because you're a mature believer. Same thing we're being called to. What amazes me is his compassion. His compassion. That you think about it, that he is genuinely concerned about lost people. While he's in jail, while his life is being threatened, he is saying, I'm concerned about people who haven't heard the word. I still want to get that out to him. Even though he's shared it for years, even though he's led many to Christ, even though he, is, he has made a tremendous impact, he doesn't reach retirement when it comes to serving Jesus and sharing the truth. You know what strikes me? This guy's commitment. His commitment. He says, pray that I may make known the mystery of the gospel of Christ. This is what God called me to. I'm going to be faithful to what God has told me to do. I am going to be committed to the teachings of Jesus. They aren't popular. There's a flood of false teachers in your church, Colossae. But I don't care. It's Christ and Christ alone that needs to be known. And even if people don't agree with me, I'm hanging on to the mystery of Christ, the truths of Jesus. His commitment that he says, pray that God would open doors. He is so committed to realize I am not in charge of getting people saved. What I do is I'm a co-laborer. God's got to be working. The Spirit's got to be working. I do my part, but I got to rely upon them. I got to be dependent upon them. He's committed to prayer. He believes in it so much, he says, please pray. Please pray. Please pray for me. He doesn't say, I've got it under control. Here is a man who is saying with his own lips that prayer is so important. Please make prayer a part of your everyday life. Now, talking about how you use your speech, one was praying to God. Number two in this same text is proclaiming God. Look at verse 5 and 6. Where he goes on, he says, Walk in wisdom towards them that are without. Oh, that tells us what we're dealing with. You and the people who are outside the faith that you run into. Redeeming the time, letting your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer them. Now he's talking about the way you speak. You speak in sharing God with other people, talking about Christ. You know, so far what we've talked about is talking to God about others. Now in this section, talking to others about God. Those others he's saying, you know, that, that you're speaking to. Those who, those who are on the outside. Those who have questions. By the way, that could include your kids. Don't your kids ask questions about the Bible? About Christ? 
Aren't they curious to know about how this all works, getting to heaven? It could, be, it could be the people that you need to share with who are outside the faith, like your brothers and your sisters, your cousins, your parents, your own kids. Basically, it could be your co-workers, your neighbors as well. Uh, bring it to the bottom line. What he's going to say in these next few verses is, all the time, make sure you're careful about how you speak, especially as you present Christ, because it could draw people to Jesus or it could push him away from Jesus as you're his representative. In fact, what he does is he gives a second command in this text, the second imperative. The second imperative is be careful about your walk. Did you catch that? He says, walk in wisdom. That's an imperative. That's a command, the word walk. And it isn't, it isn't this, folk. Okay, it isn't. Okay, Wayne, be careful how you walk across this thing so you don't slip off the step that many of you are watching Sunday by Sunday to see if I do. Okay. That isn't the walk he's talking about. He's saying walk in wisdom, which is a command. He's talking about your outward, everything about you outwardly. That is your talk. That is your dress. That is your action. That is the way you work. That is how you treat others. That is um, how you react to trials, how you play sports, what you do for entertainment. All those things. Your walk is everything that's visible to other people. And he says, walk in wisdom. Can I, can I make an observation that isn't profound, and yet it is profound? It is this. Proclaiming God is done in more ways than just your words. You can talk about Jesus all you want, but if you don't live like him, what good is your talk? So he's saying to us, okay, in wisdom means following God's word. It has the idea of whatever God has defined. What is good, wise walking in your life? And by the way, all this makes such perfect sense. We know from all the scientific study, we know that communication is much more than words. Communication is gestures. Some of you could not talk if your hands were like this all the time. We joke about that. And right away you say, what am I saying that about you people? I couldn't talk if I couldn't walk. Okay? and move about. Communication is much more than the words. It is the tone. It is the appearance. It is the gestures. It is the tone. It is the pause. It is loud. It is sometimes just the expression on the face. All of that makes a huge difference. That's why I hate texting. It is a limited form of communication. Extremely limited. Especially when I text things in, and right when I send it, it auto-corrects it. <laughs> and I've sent out the most embarrassing texts. Totally unintentional. Does email cover it all? Or do you miss some of the inflection? Have you ever seen or been in a situation that there's misunderstanding? Well, you meant this. They got that meaning out of a written word and they didn't get the tone. You know what's even worse right now? I, I think this, are, this is so hard in this day and age to communicate. You have no idea. Are they smiling? Are they, frown, are, you know, are they with you or not? Right? It just We're in a society where it's very, very difficult. We understand more than any other time in history. We understand the importance of the walk. 
more than just the words, we understand how, how important everything is. It is so hard to talk to somebody who's got a shield that's totally fogged up. You have no clue. Are they steamed up because of what I said? Are they... You know, and it's difficult. And so he's writing to us and saying, hey, be careful about this. Be very careful. In other words, okay, what, what exactly might he be referring to? We talked about it last week. In this same text, he talked about how you have to be so careful about the way you work, how that can be such an impact upon your testimony to your fellow workers, to your boss. Remember the Titus 2 passage that we complimented the Colossians passage with where it says, don't steal, don't, don't uh, lie, lest, he says, you, because you want to adorn the gospel, you don't want to detract from the gospel. Hey, it's true, your good attitude a good attitude. I mean, are you compelled to listen to somebody that does this? You better get saved or you're going to go to hell and burn. Well, that's encouraging. Okay. No, there's a little bit of a fact there. Okay. You should serve Jesus the way I am. It is so thrilling to serve Jesus. I lost all my friends. I lost my job. Praise Jesus. What about this? What about charity to the needy? Isn't the book of Acts just absolutely out front with how they reached the people by being charitable? By helping the widows, by helping the families and needs, those who were being persecuted. How it made such a difference. And by the way, doesn't the Bible say, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have love one towards another. And so he's making it very clear. I mean, a pure lifestyle he says, as we see the days approaching, as we're getting to the point where we're watching for Jesus coming back, whose gospel truth is he wants to save all men, but he tells us while we're watching, we are walking in holiness and purity. In fact, how you handle difficulties. Doesn't history tell us that some of those Christian ancestors of ours, the way that they handled persecution had a profound impact upon those who watched I mean, go to the book of Acts. Saul, later called Paul. He's there when Stephen's being stoned. He's in charge and stoned and Stephen's dying. And as a result of the way Stephen responded, we read a couple chapters later, Paul is, Paul is being in conversation with Jesus. And the response is, it's hard for you to kick against the pricks or the conviction. Where did that come from? From watching Stephen. I mean, seriously, folk. The way Jesus conducted himself made all the difference to the thief who called upon him. Made all the difference to the Roman soldier that said, truly this is the Son of God. And so our walk is extremely important. In fact, he tells us, make sure you do the walk while you're redeeming the time. Any of you have coupons that are running out? Yeah, some of you do. Yeah, we're hitting Burger King today because the coupon's running out on the 9th. So today we're doing it. We're buying up the coupon. We're making sure we get it in right now. Right here we go. That's what redeeming the time is. Is it's taking advantage of the opportunity. Think this through. What he means by this is, keep in mind, life goes quick. Not all those opportunities are going to last. And if anybody in this room is of ancient age, like as my kids would say, 40 or over... Do you realize how quickly time is going by? 
Redeeming the time means that what we do is we know the value of limited opportunities. That when they arise, we grab them because they won't last. That's exactly why the deacons approached you here a couple weeks ago and said, let's invest money. We have money that's sitting in our savings. Let's get 150, up to $150,000 into missions, ASAP. The reason for that was because we have opportunities that are right now. One of the opportunities is in Central Asia. And what they did about three weeks ago is there's a region there that in some of these villages, the people weren't able to work. COVID restricted, shut down everything. Everything. And people didn't have food. So some of the ministries there, they got together and they, do, they said, we will put a number of packs, I think it was 100, of different bags of salt and sugar and flour, some of the basics. And with those, those bags of food, we'll put an MP3 player that has the teachings of Jesus on it, the gospel. They put it with the bags and they gave those out. And if I have my numbers right, they gave 100 bags out, 13 Muslims prayed to ask Christ to get, become their savior. That's an opportunity we can't miss. That's why this week we sent off over $20,000 to get those grocery bags spread out now. In Southeast Asia, where we had missionaries just recently, same type of thing. Southeast Asia, there they are. Villages are shut down. When I communicated with them a couple weeks ago, they said we could use and give out foodstuffs. Plus there are people who are starving. Plus there are people who need just fuel. We could use that with the gospel. And we gave out another 20000 plus to that ministry. To get it going ASAP. If you've been following the news, the Philippines have been shut down. They were also hit with a typhoon last weekend. Supposed to be another one coming in. And in our communication with our friend there, Let, that all of a sudden he says the, de- the infrastructure is shut down. We are in desperate spot. Our people need desperate help. We sent thousands of dollars that way to help them out. Why? The opportunity, the need is there now. Do you want to know what's an interesting comment that came out of the one in Central Asia? Two of those ladies who got saved in the last week, they made comment to the pastors that were helping them They said, you know, for years and years we've been told Christians are brutal people. Christians are the enemy. Our own people weren't helping us out. It was only you Christians. Do not waste the opportunities. Redeeming the time in our walk. Now we're trying to do that as a, a corporate body. What are you doing as an individual? What are you doing? An opportunity, a bounty box, an opportunity to share the love of Christ. Take advantage of it, but then keep in mind that redeeming the time says it takes a lifetime to build a witness, but a minute to destroy it. Be very careful. Be very careful in your walk. But that's not the only one. Let's wrap up with this. He says, not only worry about your walk, but he does say, what about your words? And again, I remind you, That these are words, in particular in this text, presenting Christ, which you're doing all the time. But he says, always, this should be your normal pattern. This should be you all the time. At work, at home, at play, at church. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. You know what gracious is. I don't have to explain kindness in words, encouragement. Do you know what the idea of, of being seasoned with salt is? Seasoned with salt is going back and let's say, what what did they use salt for? Well, they used it in several ways. It was medicinal. Your words should heal people. 
They should encourage people. They should resolve conflicts, not enhance conflicts. You should be one of those people that is a peacemaker. Healing. Your word should be pure. Salt was, was, was used to keep things from rotting. Your speech should be that type that is using phrases, using words that are not impure, or ungodly, or oath-taking, or cussing, or getting involved with dirty talk, just so you can be like the other guys. Your speech should be that type of speech that flavors, makes palatable, makes appealing the message of Christianity. It should add to it. It should enhance it. Which for me, it's a challenge. I take this sincerely in, in, in my, my job. This is the way I apply it to me. I think that I need to put effort and time and thought into not only what words I'm saying, but how I communicate via expression, via illustration, via application to make the message so you listen, so you learn, so it's not monotone, so it's not boring. I sincerely believe that's what this passage, how it applies to me. That I have to work at what I communicate, that it's accurate, but it is also adorning the gospel. Making it palatable and something that's appealing for people to listen to. Or else, I could be like that professor. Down in one of the Philadelphia universities, true story that came out of one of the universities a few years ago. That this professor was as boring, as boring, as boring could be. But it was a required class. So the students had to sit in the class. And so they had heard one year, they had heard about how he was so boring. And they decided that what they would do is they would spice up the class. The classroom was like this with a center aisle. So they divided everybody and said, as the students by themselves, we're always going to sit in certain seats all through the semester. This will be one team. This will be other team. And when the professor, who was known for not only being boring, but using cliche phrases, whenever he says a cliche phrase like, and so on, and so on, that's going to count. We're going to play baseball. And every one of those cliches, some of them are going to be a strike. Some are going to be a hit. Certain phrases are going to be a single. Certain phrases are going to be an out. Certain phrases will be a home run. And they kept track. The professor was amazed by how attentive this whole class was. And how sometimes they would snicker. And sometimes things that weren't funny, all of a sudden, they would be laughing at. And he just thought it was a very engaging class. It comes to the last day. I couldn't, I couldn't have made this thing up. It comes to the last day, his last lecture, the score is tied. <laughs> they, are in, they are in the last inning. There are two outs, and there are bases are loaded. And the one team is losing, and they've got the bases loaded. And the professor is winding down, and when he says one certain cliche phrase, I don't know what the phrase was, the cliche phrase was a home run. All of a sudden, that, class, that group that was behind, they just won. They stand up and they are cheering and clapping. And the professor has never had this happen before. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. 
and he is amazed that they are so appreciative. I've never had a class so appreciative. Then he looked at this side, and he wondered out loud, but why only half of you are appreciating it? (laughs) It doesn't make a difference how we present things. Sure. Sure it does. And so, like I say, for me, I need to work on this area amongst many others when it comes to my speech. So let me bring it with questions to you. You're to be gracious, seasoned with salt. Are you? Would your family say grace personifies you and your talk when you're talking in your house? Would those close to you say that when you talk about other people, you are gracious? Are you kind in your speech towards those who are critical of Christianity that you disagree with? It may not just be Christianity, it may be politics. Are, would others you work with or go to school with say that you are an encourager? Or would they say that, of all the kids in class, you kind of beat everybody up? You're a bully with your words. What about this? Do you use pure words? Or do you try to spice things up with vocabulary that is cussing and cursing and profane? Are you an individual that you would be marked by healing? That you heal conflicts, or is it pretty clear that you are one that stirs things up? In fact, when conflicts arise in your home, in your marriage, between your siblings, are you the peacemaker, or are you the one that you want to keep it going until you get your way? Are you an individual that when you're having a bad day, Whoa, everybody look out. Are, are you an individual that your speech is, is filled with compliments or is it filled with criticisms? Are you an individual that your kids, your grandkids have said, have, have hinted they would like to be like you, the way that you talk, the way you treat others? Or have you had the experience that they have said, I will never treat my kids the way you treat me. I will never talk to people or about people like the way you talk about. Are you a type of individual that when it comes to sharing Christ, you draw people to Christ? You you create within them a desire to learn about him? Or when they look at your walk and your words, they could care less about it because of hypocrisy. Are you an individual that to the best of your abilities, you try to draw your own family members to Christ? Or have your own family members rejected because of you? I think our prayer this week should be this. I think every single one of us should mark this down and make this our prayer this week. Set a watch, O Lord, before my mouth. Keep the door of my lips. This should be our memory verse. That we make Christ preeminent, not profane, with our lips. Father in heaven, This is an area that every single one of us can work on and can improve. We know your word says no man can tame the tongue. It is only by your spirit. We're going to need your help. 
We need your help right now that we do not determine to walk away and do nothing with this word. We need your conviction, your correction. We need your encouragement. We need your forgiveness right now. We need your assistance and your spirit to remind us this week to work on our speech. To work on our speech. So that we are better at proclaiming you and praying to you. And Father, if there is any in this room who does not know for sure they are on their way to heaven, I would pray that this day they would be they would be drawn by the Spirit of God to a saving knowledge of Jesus. Thank you for being our Father. Thank you for being our God. Thank you for your simple word. Thank you for the attentiveness of these good folk. Give us a day where we honor you, but make you preeminent in our conversation. In Jesus' name I pray.